Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Thursday. This episode is brought to you by Good Ranchers. Go to goodranchers.com slash Allie for a discount. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie. Okay, guys, I've got a really big and important interview for you today. I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. Do not listen to this interview out loud around your kids, all right? This is for you to listen to and watch maybe with your spouse so you can discuss it or maybe with the women in your Bible study. If you are a teenager who listens to this podcast, I love that you're here. This is a very mature subject that I would really encourage you, if you would, to have your parent listen to first or just to skip over it. I'm not even sure if it's necessary for you to listen to or watch. I know I don't really have control over that, but I'm going to do the best I can to put this kind of filter in front of you and say that we are talking about some explicit things, some things that I wish we didn't have to talk about because they're so disturbing. They really make me want to cry. (laughs) But the reason why I'm so desperate for you to listen to this conversation, the reason why I'm doing this conversation in this interview is because I want us to see and to stare in the face the darkness and the depravity that is underneath the gender ideology, the radical gender ideology that has taken our culture captive. I want you to see that when it comes to this subject, we are dealing with evil. We are dealing with people who are perpetrating evil and people who are victims of evil sometimes. Those are the same people. We're going to be talking about pornography. We are going to be talking about pornography's role and um, sexual perversion's role in all of this. We're going to be talking, unfortunately, about BDSM and how that is inextricably intertwined with this movement, as taboo, as controversial as that is to say. This is largely... When it comes to the involvement of adult men in this, sexual in nature, predatory in nature. And it is important that we recognize that. That is not an unloving thing to say. Actually, the most loving thing that we can do is to speak the truth about this because we are talking about the victimization in particular of women and children. If you care about so-called social justice, if you care about equality, if you care about true equity, if you care about the least of these, if you care about the vulnerable and the marginalized, you need to care about this and you need to open your eyes and ears to the truth of what is really going on here. I know it's easy to just add some colors to the rainbow flag and call it a day and to just latch on to every new cultural, social movement that happens and call yourself inclusive and tolerant. But this moment calls for a lot of critical thinking. It calls for explicit clarity and it calls for courage, especially on the part of Christians. So one of the reasons why I'm talking about this is that I think that it is biblical to talk about this. So there is a passage in Ephesians 5 that I think Um, is pertinent 
to this. Take no part, 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And you know what? Let me back up just a little bit, because I also think that the verses before this matter. So let me go to verse six. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk of children as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them whatever is shown by the light becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. So that is what I venture to do in this conversation that I am about to have with someone who describes herself as a feminist. That means that we probably disagree on a lot of political issues, but on this, I'm happy to link arms with her. And she is an incredible reporter, um, very smart, very insightful, um, especially when it comes to this subject. And she has really fearlessly investigated into the roots and into the organization of transgender ideology and how that is is affecting women and children. So we are joined today by a woman named Genevieve Gluck. She's a journalist at the site Redux, and she is going to talk to us about her research and what it has revealed, just the depths of depravity here. And I want you at any point that you need to, to pause and to pray, to take a breath. But I also want you to share this episode. I want you to share this episode with as many people as possible, people who are on the fence, people who are confused, people who just need to be woken up to this. If this is something, if this is an ideology that is being pushed on your kids, whether it's through Disney, the shows that they're watching, the videos that they're watching, the school that they're attending, the curriculum that they're learning, you need to wake up to the reality of what is going on. This is serious, serious stuff, as serious as it gets. So let's care about this. Let's speak up about this as our friend Genevieve Gluck does um, so well. And I'm I'm excited for you to hear this, to listen to this, to watch this, and then to do something about it and turn around and share it with other people. Maybe one of the most important episodes and interviews that I have ever done. So before we get into it with her, I do need to pause. I need to tell you about our first sponsor for the day. Um, and that is... Eden Pure. So Eden Pure, if you're watching on YouTube, this is an air purifier and it works uh, really well to take out the viral particles that are circulating in your home or in your office or wherever you put this air purifier, wherever you spend a lot of time. It eliminates odors like pet cigarette smoke, um, urine, cooking odors, dirty diapers, whatever is stinking up the area that you are occupying. This takes care of that. They've got an awesome deal going on right now. And it is the thunderstorm bogo so this particular item that they sell is called the thunderstorm you just plug it into your wall and it works really well and they have a buy one get one free deal going on with my discount code that's ali bogo at edenpuredeals.com so edenpuredeals.com use discount code a code ali bogo for buy one get one free shipping is free Genevieve, thank you so much for joining us. Could you tell everyone who you are and what you do? 
Sure. Uh, yeah. So my name is Genevieve Gluck, and I'm a feminist essayist and researcher. I have been writing about issues that pertain to women's rights for several years now, I think, starting around like 2017. And I have written some essays about this topic. But in particular, I started a website this year with my friend Anna Slats called Redux. And we've been using that platform to focus on uh, how gender identity is in conflict in many ways with the rights of women and the rights of children. Um, so that's been my primary focus recently. And you hear a lot that feminists are silent about this issue of gender ideology. Whenever there's a story that comes out of a trans identified, you know, male inmate going into a woman's prison or beating a girl in an athletic competition you hear where are the feminists the feminists are silent why are the feminists on board with this but that's obviously not true it's not just your outlet but there are other feminist outlets too that are pushing against this ideology does that ever get frustrating when people accuse it's kind of feminists? So frustrating yes i i'm sure it does go ahead yeah, um, I know Megan Murphy, who you've talked with last year, uh, has the same problem. So she was banned from Twitter for talking about this. But, you know, part of the problem is that whenever women do talk about it, we get so much uh, backlash and even get censored. Um, so even the backlash itself could be discouraging people from talking about it. But, you know, there are a lot of feminists who unfortunately have to be anonymous online for this very reason, because of the threat to their job, to their families and so on. And then there are professing feminists, especially like mainstream Hollywood feminists, who do say that they are totally on board with gender ideology. They don't see any conflict in a man who identifies a woman as a woman playing on a female sports team or going into a female locker room or prison. They think that's just inclusive and fine. What do you make of that? I mean, you know, it's hard to say. It's different for everybody, but uh, obviously there's an immense amount of social pressure to go along with this because going against this has been portrayed as being against human rights, uh, which I would actually argue is not the case at all. Um, but, you know, it's popular. It's trendy even. It's become something of a... Uh, cool thing, a cool issue. You know, recently I was talking to a, a mother who had a detransitioned daughter and she even said so that with the children in school that this is something that's cool and that being quote unquote cis is very boring or seen as uh, old fashioned. So there's that as well. Oh, that's really, really sad. I mean, Abigail Schreier, who I know that you're familiar with, she wrote the book Irreversible Damage. We had her on the podcast at the time, and she looks at the research that shows the social contagion aspect, especially for mm -hmm. a lot of young women who are caught in all kinds of social contagions, probably for all of history. And this just happens to be one and a very physically and psychologically damaging one at that. Um, tell me a little bit more about, I mean, we've gone back and forth about this a lot, but um, about your research as it pertains to kind of the origins of this kind of gender ideology and then how it's gotten to the point that you just described where it's almost cool in some circles. It's almost a trend. I mean, how in the world did we get here? It's a long story. It's a big question. I know. <laughs> um, yeah. But I guess I would put it somewhere along the axis of, you know, sexology and academia in sexology. 
as well as in pornography. And I see them as intersecting with each other. Um, but if you look at the history of sexology, uh, there's been this growing push to destigmatize certain fetishes, which are technically called paraphilias, right? And so in the past, um, until very recently, actually, this sort of behavior that we see in adult men of, you know, calling themselves girls or wanting to, to be seen as girls um, or as women was understood to be fetishistic in nature. And it was called things like transvestic fetishism or transsexualism as well, depending on the extent to which someone would go through with uh, living through this fantasy. So the idea, um, just to be kind of explicit for people who don't know, um, when you say fetish, it used to be understood that men who dress up as girls, that it was they would get sexually aroused from that kind of thing. And now it's seen as an identity. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Um, now it's taboo to talk about that, even though uh, they will openly talk about that in their own forums throughout Reddit or, you know, anywhere that this issue is being discussed online. It's quite apparent. And that was actually one of the things that led me to look further into this was because it was so out in the open. And yet, if you talk about it, uh, you're, you're deemed to be uh, somewhat crazy or making it up or blowing it out of proportion. Um, uh, so yeah, there's that fetishistic element. And the way I see it is it, as this becomes normalized through society, as the push to normalize this this fetish goes further, it, it extends on to women and children. So by using women and children as the conduit, this this typically male behavior can become normalized and accepted through society. Um, and that goes along with the pornography as well. So pornography viewership has just skyrocketed immensely, obviously with streaming pornography. And so one thing that you have with pornography consumption is the tendency to need to seek out greater and more shocking content to elicit the same thrill. So then you have you enter into this area of body modifications. So, so initially that would have been women getting really large breast implants or what have you uh, to to heighten the, the unnatural aspect and to keep pushing the boundaries as it were further and further. And then you have, um, well, this isn't my term for it, but technically it's called tranny porn online, um, which is the, the aspect of the male as the female. So when you have those things combined, the, the sexualization of body modification and then pushing for more and more extreme thrills, uh, you have this going on behind closed doors and then it's seeping into the public sphere. Yes, that's wow. my take on it. Yeah. There's so, so there are so many questions that I have within that. And I do want to make sure that we come back to the pornography question. This is something that you have written about before that you've investigated and uncovered. But to go back kind of to the origins of sexology, kind of, I mean, I know it's before the 60s and 70s, but it seems like that went kind of is when it became more institutionalized, especially in academia, if you're looking at someone like Alfred Kinsey or you're looking at someone like uh, John Money, that's almost when it seems like at least it became acceptable to make these kinds of suggestions that while well, maybe pedophilia is just, they would say, some kind of sexual orientation or maybe it is possible, as we saw with the experiment that Dr. Money did on the Reimer twins, to just basically castrate a boy, raise him as a girl, 
all will be well. And of course, we know that he actually conducted sexual experiments between those two boys. They ended up growing up and committing suicide. And then Alfred Kinsey and all of his perverted ideas of sex and gender. It was the 60s, it seems like that kind of form of what they would call sexual liberation um, came into being. And it was like an academic and intellectual label was slapped on it. So it kind of became normalized. But only recently, as you're kind of saying now, has it become mainstream as bad ideas often do. They seep down from academia into the mainstream. And now we are seeing, as you're saying, it become kind of this identity that you're not allowed to push back on. And is your argument or from your investigation, are you saying that it went from this kind of esoteric academic idea into the mainstream through the prevalence of pornography? Like, is that the connector? Um, you know, a lot can and should be said about the role of academia in this. Um, but it's also important to notice that the the organizing that has been going on behind the scenes as well, that's been at a more grassroots level. And when I say that, I'm talking about certain societies within the U.S. that were being formed in the 60s and 70s, cross-dressing organizations. So in particular, uh, Virginia Charles Prince uh, is a man who created, well, one publication he created was called Transvestia, but he also created these lobbying organizations that were spreading through across the U.S. And what these organizations were was essentially fetishistic cross-dressing and lobbying politicians to have this normalized into the mainstream. So that was going on towards the end of the 60s, early 70s. Uh, and Prince himself, notably, it should be mentioned, he, he took the tactics of the LGB movement of the time. So he actually kind of piggybacked off of what they were doing, uh, talked about going to their meetings and observing them in order to get their contacts, as he put it. Um, and so I, I really see what happened through the 60s to 70s as this uh, fetishistic attachment onto a human rights movement. And we're seeing that uh, unfortunately, again, in my opinion, in, in a scale that's just unprecedented. Right, right. And I want to hear more about the pornography aspect that you um, that you have mentioned here, or that you mentioned a few minutes ago, because you talked about what is referred to, not your term, but I guess just what is referred to online as tranny porn. But there's also something that you've written about called sissy porn. And you talk about its prevalence and how it has also affected the normalization of this idea that a man can identify as not just a woman, but a girl. Like that's something that we're seeing on TikTok. There's a very popular TikTok influencer who is a grown man with a five o'clock shadow who is a who says that he is now experiencing a girl and he is not seen as a creep by people. He is seen as someone that like people applaud and love and will follow. So this is normal. But you're saying some of this came from something called sissy porn. So what the heck is that? And how did that infiltrate into mainstream society? Well, I'm sorry to have to explain this. I know. Uh, so I know. It, We've already um, told people at the beginning that this is like, this is a disturbing and explicit conversation, unfortunately, but I do think it's important to kind of expose just like the darkness that's underneath all of this. 
So sissyport is actually a subgenre of a much broader genre, which is called forced feminization pornography. Uh, that revolves around uh, eroticizing humiliation, uh, particularly of men being humiliated by being turned into, uh, meta uh, metaphorically turned into women, by being forced to uh, wear lingerie, put on makeup, or take on the submissive sexual role, I guess you could say. Um, so that's a much broader umbrella that has other types of things under it. But so sissy porn falls under that category and it also has different types. So there are audio files, for example, that are just focused on listening. Uh, that's called sissy hypno, which it's exactly as it says, it's meant to hypnotize the listener into believing that they actually are a woman through repeated mantras and uh, sexualized dialogue not even dialogue, it's often monologue, um, saying things like you are a girl, you always have been a girl, you are a good girl, you're very submissive, things like this. That's the audio files, but then there's also things called sissy captions, which are photographs usually of real women in pornography that the uh, man has then written some kind of story along the side of them to go with them. This one's particularly disturbing in my opinion because I have seen cases where men have taken photos of children and written things of uh, sexual nature uh, alongside them. Um, so uh, that's disturbing on its own right, but also the fact that nothing legally can be done to take those images down, even though they're of someone else's children. Um, and yeah, so in general, it's just this concept of being forced to be turned into a woman and then the, the male viewer finding that arousing. So I've actually been speaking with some men who are trying to give up pornography in general, but also who specifically had an addiction to sissy pornography, which they have described as, you know, weapons grade mind control. They say it's uh, somehow it's even worse uh, in terms of addiction than than what they would call mainstream pornography because it has this uh, this taboo or extreme element to it and uh, it incorporates your lifestyle. So you're then encouraged to start doing these things on your own, such as dressing up, or they even give you challenges that you're supposed to do, such as going out in public to do things. Um, and so the men who have spoken to me uh, were very honest about all of this and saying that they wanted to, to quit, but also that that it's, unlo it's unlike anything that they had ever experienced before in terms of how it altered their, their perception of themselves. Wow. And so do you think that this has to do with kind of the, what seems like the growing prevalence of men suddenly saying when they are adults, like, I mean, men who have been men for several decades, um, and then they decide that they want to identify as a woman. Like, do you think that this type of pornography is affecting that or leading to that in any way? 100%. I don't think it's in 100% of cases, but absolutely it is having an impact. And I know that because I've actually spoken with some women while well, I talked to a woman who was uh, in the pornography industry and she she spoke about this in particular, the, the sissification aspect, which, you know, really what this is, is, is sadomasochism. So, so just for a moment, let me break that down. So w when you have this behavior, this fetishistic behavior, it's, it, 
that involves a man pretending to be a woman. It's actually the uh, sexualization of humiliation and the the thrill in mm. lowering one's status, mm. as it were. So that's the masochistic element involved. Mm. And like and so, the, the woman submissiveness that they perceive is attached to the feminine identity. Exactly right. Yeah. So the woman I talked to was sort of in the BDSM scene and she personally witnessed um, men who were initially involved in, in certain BDSM activities then declaring themselves to be transgender. All right, let me tell you about one of my absolute favorite sponsors because they are just one of the best companies ever with amazing products, and that is Adele Natural Cosmetics. I use this product every day. Adele Natural Cosmetics is a family-run, holistic, handcrafted, and toxin-free cosmetic company where all of their products are made right here in the USA. They started in 1999 because of Arlene's own health issues, and she was looking for a more natural way to live, including um, making sure that the ingredients in her makeup, and not just her makeup, but also her face wash, her moisturizer, everything that she was putting on her body um, was toxin-free. And so then she started a company creating these kinds of products for other people who are looking for the same thing. And natural products, I think that a lot of people are afraid they're just not going to be as effective. Are you going to get as much coverage when it comes to your foundation or is the lotion going to work as well? I think that my skin personally, if I do say so myself, has never looked and felt better. I use all of their um, skincare regimen. I use their foundation. I really love Adele Natural Cosmetics. They're pro-life. I love knowing that my money is supporting the values that I believe in. So please go to Adele, that's A-D-E-L, naturalcosmetics.com. Use code Allie for 25% off your first order. That's adelnaturalcosmetics.com, promo code Allie for 25% off your first order, adelnaturalcosmetics.com. So the DSM-5 um, says that gender dysphoria, true gender dysphoria, is the persistent, insistent, consistent feeling of being in the wrong body, of having the wrong gender. And we're simultaneously told by transgender ideologues that a child knows their gender identity at two years old. So if they find, you know, interests that are typical to um, the other sex, then maybe they're transgender. Or if they don't want to wear, you know, dresses and they were born a girl, they might be transgender. But simultaneously, we're told it's just as legitimate for someone who has lived as a girl, lived as a boy their whole lives to suddenly when they're either a teenager or when they're adult to realize that they really are the opposite sex. Um, do you think in general, not just with men suddenly declaring that as adults, but the entire kind of transgender as adult movement or kind of uh, popularity has grown, do you think that has to do with this kind of sissification that we're seeing in pornography or those things connected in general? Well, one problem with this is that it's not being researched. Um, well, that's a big problem with the whole gender identity movement in general, because it's just you're just supposed to take it at its word and and it's entirely objective, depending on what someone says. But with the sissification, um, I have seen anecdotally stories, for example, of young boys who started looking at this kind of content when they were very young. Uh, I mean, young, young, like 11, mm. 12, 13, and then that leading down the pathway of being confused about 
their bodies, their gender, um, you know, sex actually with their sexed bodies. So, um, uh, and that's also another problem is that it's not actually gender, is it? It's got to do with the body. So when we talk about having these feelings of gender dysphoria, what we're actually or should be discussing is body dysmorphia, the feeling of, of being at ill at ease with your body. Um, gender is, is something else. And, um, I would argue that many people feel ill at ease with gender, but specifically feeling ill at ease with your body. And pornography is known to induce that, actually. Mm-hmm. So research has shown that even specifically in, in men, um, feelings of dysmorphia about their genitalia, which is one of the so-called indicators of gender identity disorder. Well, that makes a lot of sense. If you're seeing something that doesn't really match reality, um, and is distorted in some way, whether it's amplified or someone is playing a role, whatever it is, of course, that is going to affect how you see yourself and how you see yourself in the mirror. I mean, just think about, we've seen studies as well of girls having forms of body dysmorphia when it comes to their facial features because of the filters that are used on TikTok, that are used on Instagram. So if that is true, when it comes to just looking at your face and then being disappointed when you look at the mirror, think about when it's something as intimate and not just psychological, but physiological and um, and and physical as well as looking at pornography. That is going to affect how you see yourself, and not just that, not just your body, but also your identity and your entire life. I think people really minimize the impact that pornography has, not just on an individual's mind, but then it also has the power to kind of shape society and how a society views sex and so-called gender. And I think you're right. Not enough people are exploring this link. It's taboo. You're seen as prude. You're seen as, you know, anti-fun or anti-sex in general. In order to be sex positive, you have to just say, yay, pornography. Um, but you're really calling out that, I mean, this is having some very serious effects on people's lives. Yeah, it's, it's a bit frustrating, too, because even um, among women I know who, who criticize pornography, this particular issue is not really on the table, you know. And I understand that everyone has to choose their own uh, fight, I guess, and, and pick what they're going to stand for. But the the impact that I believe that this is having on identity is, is huge and really needs to be talked about more. Um, we, we have seen, too, a, a detransitioner who spoke about this. So Helena had written a post about how Tumblr porn had had an influence on her decision to, well, to declare herself to be a boy, I guess you would say. Um, so it's shaping children's perceptions of who they should be, uh, what they should look like, how they should act, what young girls are supposed to be doing, um, the the extreme sexualization involved in pornography that harms girls', girls self-image, and then they go on to say, I must not really be a girl because I don't want that. I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And if anyone doubts that the sexualization and the different subsets of pornography are affecting what the world thinks about transgender ideology and not only that but actually the so-called treatments that are giving to that are given to kids who call themselves transgender they can learn more about your research into the world professional association uh for transgender health which is what i want to talk to you about 
now. You've kind of gone back and forth about this um, for a little while. But what you found is really that this organization that is publishing the standards of care for so-called transgender youth, they're getting some of their information, some of their research from like online pornography groups and fetish, uh, fetish groups, right? That are fetishizing the castration of children. Is that correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, unfortunately it is correct, yeah. Um, so I started to look into this issue around December uh, when WPATH, Let me back up. Let me explain what WPATH is for those who don't know, because this is hugely important. And I think we need to start taking our fight to WPATH. We need to shift our focus, maybe so much from the politicians, not too much, but we need to start looking at the medical professionals who are at the top um, in order to then have an influence on the politicians, because in many regards, the politicians are following what WPATH is saying. And so the World Professional Association for Transgender Health recommends certain guidelines and protocols which are used internationally, including those that involve the transitioning of children. So first of all, that's very important. Um, Second of all, the investigation that I did was I started around December when they announced their new standards of care document. Within that document, they had made a reference to a website that I recognized from my own research, which was called the Eunuch Archive, which is basically a, a, a fetish forum, I guess. So it's it's where people would post uh, stories of an extreme sadomasochistic nature that involve castration in particular. Um, and nearly half of the stories on that site involve the castration of children, the sexualizing of the castration of children, torture, snuff, I mean, sexual abuse of of an extreme graphic detail it's hard for me to overstate it because you know i had to look at some of these things and i I, it made me feel ill um we're talking about stories about doctors intentionally castrating children in order to keep them in a childlike state and uh, nazis like nazis are a part of this fantasy and pornography so these men are reading depicting stories of nazis basically castrating young boys they're getting off on that Yes, yes. Um, And it's all behind a password uh, protected part of the site, which I was able to get into. So it's quite clear that they know this content is, I mean, they even warned that it might be illegal in your jurisdiction. So they're based in the U.S. And unfortunately, this type of content is legal. So that was done in a Supreme Court decision in 2002 called Ashcroft versus the Free Speech Coalition. So Basically, the pornography lobby of the U.S. um, allowed for this to happen. Um, Anyway, the point that I want to make that I want everyone to really understand is that the administrators of this site were selected by WPATH leaders beginning as early as 2009 to come and speak at their conferences and influence policies and influence standards of care. But not only that, to influence the DSM-5, so the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for Mental Disorders. So these people who are writing these awful stories involving harming children in unspeakable ways, um, specifically castrating them, and then having them involved in, in 
saying what is and isn't a mental disorder. So somewhere and it's not around just that, the castration. I just want to emphasize that these people, many of them are actually pedophiles. The thing that they are also fetishizing is not just the castration and the gender mutilation, but also this idea, which reminds me of something else that you've reported on, um, this idea of a child being frozen in their adolescence. They are also fetishizing that. So once again, we see the link um, to pedophilia. It reminds me of also what you've said about the guy who came up with the transgender flag, who used to write this kind of pornography and this kind of fantasy of little of being a little girl and staying a little girl and being frozen in this childlike state. So we're not just talking about one example of a few random people in this eunuch archive being pedophiles and getting off on this kind of stuff. This, unfortunately, is pretty prevalent when you're looking at the roots of this ideology and movement, as you are also proving in their connection to this mainstream transgender organization. Right. So I want to respond to a couple of things. So the first thing is that I think that this overlap that you're talking about exists because what you have is not so much a transgender umbrella. You have a sadomasochism umbrella and under sadomasochism, uh, anything goes really. And so as I've described before, basically the the humiliation and the, the masochistic fetish of the man being reduced to the woman's status that obviously falls under sadomasochism, um, as does pedophilia. So they're they're in the same family, I guess you could mm. say. Uh, that's why the overlap is so prevalent. And that's why the overlap will always be there. And it cannot be removed. Um, mm. It just goes, you know, the fetishism goes further and further, um, tends to escalate over time anyway. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say before we move to the trans flag is, again, I, I just really think it's so important to, to say that WPATH was involved in this, I proved it. Uh, anyone who's curious to know more about that can look at the reports that I did for Redux. Um, there's two of them, and I named some of the academics who were behind this website. Um, I actually personally got an email from one of them that was uh, quite angry, but also confirmed what I was saying. Um, so it, it's, it's crucial that people not look this over or think it's too shocking to talk about because yeah. we need to bring this to the front door of WPATH and we need to do something about this. Um, but I will go on to talk about the trans flag now. Well, so, Well, no, let's let's talk about this a little bit more deeply. I know I kind of took us off on a tangent there, but I, I do want to make sure, as you're saying, that people really understand what's going on here. And I want to ask some specific questions about this. Um, who is Dr. Krister Hildahl Willett? How is he connected to all this? Okay, so I have two articles that I wrote about this. And in the first one, I named Krister Willett. And then in the other, I was able to name two other academics. So in total, three. So Willett is one of three academics who are main site administrators for the Unic Archive uh, and have been for over 20 years. Hmm. Now, this website was initially hosted on an extreme body modification pornography site that was called BME, and it was hosted in Canada. So these men actually were, uh, well, I can say at least one of them was speaking with the host of the BME site, and then he was hosting the Unic Archive and then on it um, various 
pornographic content related to genital mutilation. Um, then they launched their own site to, to use the written stories, uh, to collect the written stories, sorry. And Willett is one of them. Willett has been involved with the website for over 20 years, and he was there at the very beginning. The other one is Dr. Tom Johnson, and the other is Richard Wasserseg. Um, Johnson is an academic in California, and Wasserseg is from Canada, or was a professor in Canada, I should say. Anyway, so these three men were involved in taking research surveys that they specifically conducted with members and participants of the Fetish Forum, the Unic Archive. They took that research and presented it at WPATH conferences beginning in 2009. So the first one was a conference in Oslo. This conference, by the way, is the one that is where the decision was made to change gender identity from a disorder to, to dysphoria. It was this conference in Oslo in 2009 that that happened, and they were in attendance there. So I think that that's really important. Mm-hmm. And then, as I mentioned, uh, Johnson, the, the academic from California, uh, had a hand in editing the DSM-5. And what about Eli Coleman? He is also an academic. He is, from my understanding, a professor at the University of Minnesota. He's also connected to this. Right. So the Unic Archive members have a meetup every year, and they have been for nearly 20 years now. And Eli Coleman is based in Minneapolis, where they hold their gatherings. Uh, Eli Coleman was a former president of WPATH and was the lead uh, lead executive chair on drafting the new standards of hair document. And he specifically reached out to Tom Johnson the academic I'd mentioned previously, in order to help him devise these new standards of care. So there is an obvious and stated connection between the two of them working together. Uh, I don't know exactly how long that connection's been going on. I know it must be since at least 2016. I would probably put it earlier at somewhere around 2009 when they first attended the Oslo conference. And WPATH also just announced recently that hormones could be started for kids who apparently identify as transgender even younger than before, age 14 rather than age 15 or 17. Obviously, that's disturbing for a whole host of ethical reasons, but understanding where they are getting some of their inspiration and direction from the very people who fetishize, um, the kind of freezing in time of adolescence, which is exactly what puberty blockers do, that's exactly what, in some cases, these cross-sex hormones do, understanding that they are getting their direction from the people who are actually getting off on that kind of thing, I mean, that is just a disturbing beyond words. It is. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know what to say that. I, I, I've, I've actually seen on Twitter when I was looking into the sissy porn stuff, sorry, but um, I actually saw kind of CSA that was posted there um, referencing puberty blockers, which Twitter was very quick to take that down when I reported it. But well, that's good. That's, that mean, is good, but in general, I, I they're not usually so. No, no, they're absolutely not. And I just am thinking about how difficult it probably was for your mind and for your heart to kind of have to inundate yourself with all of this disturbing darkness. I think we like to think that this kind of stuff doesn't exist. And and wow, when you think about the fact that this whole thing has been attached to LGB 
and it's just been added on to the rainbow, like without any kind of critical thinking or consideration. I mean, you've got all of these mainstream corporations that are just kind of adding it on to pride and are just accepting this idea that it's this irreversible identity and that there's nothing fishy about it and there's no kind of questions that you can ask about it. I mean, that is some pretty successful, to, for a lack of a better term, marketing and work on the side of transgender activism. It's, it, I mean, it's happened so fast, it almost makes your head spin. Even in all of your explanations of this, it's still hard for me to understand how in just the last five to 10 years, it has become so mainstream and so accepted and so taboo to ask the questions that you're asking, which is simply, where did this come from and what is pushing it? Yeah, there there has been a lot of things going on behind the scenes uh, as well that we haven't been seeing in the public eye. Lots of mobilizing. Um, I did want to mention that, you know, I see this as something of a parallel between the sort of movements that were happening in the 60s and 70s that you had mentioned before of, uh, for example, the push to normalize pedophilia, because that was also something that was going on uh, kind of behind the scenes with these these special interest groups that they organized very well. And that was before the internet. You, you know, you've got to imagine that the, the capability to organize has just been um, heightened exponentially recently. And I have started looking into the history of, for example, Usenet. So Usenet being a sort of closed forum of what we would consider early social media. And then there are extreme fetish groups there that have been organizing um as well. I, I, I'm exploring that avenue because I strongly suspect that some of the early organizing was going on through Usenet. And um, well, when you have a group of people who have a shared interest and in, in, in predatory interest, they, they tend to work very hard to get what they want. Okay, another one of my favorite sponsors, and that is Naturally It's Clean. You have heard me talk about these products on Instagram because they are awesome and effective, and I love them so much. All of their cleaning products are also made in the United States, and I love that about them. Also, they're a company run by good people, so you don't have to worry about your money going to a corporation that's turning around and then donating to organizations that are fighting against your values. You don't have to worry about that with Naturally It's Clean. They have specialized formulas for every area of your home, from the kitchen to the bathroom to the laundry room. They have you covered with hospital-grade solutions, so super effective, but they don't reek of nasty chemicals because they are safer than your normal cleaning product. They have less toxins and they are better for your home and they are better for your pets. They're better for your kids. I recommend starting with Allie's four pack of the Essential Starter Kit, which includes four of their top products. Go to naturallyitsclean.com slash Allie. Use promo code Allie to, to receive 15% off your order. That is Allie's Essential Starter Kit by visiting naturallyitsclean.com slash Allie. I mean, it's kind of hard to deny that this is happening when you're seeing some of the recent stories um, that have come out that you've been reporting on. I mean, there are some terrible and just such disturbing examples that you um, have talked about recently. One of them, headline from Redux, which is sadistic killer with a blood fetish transferred to New Jersey women's prison. 
Um, he's a male convict. He admitted to killing a prostitute woman to satisfy a blood fetish. He has now identified himself as transgender and is in the Edna Mahan Women's Correctional Facility in New Jersey. I mean, this is just proof of what you're talking about, that this is BDSM. Like, this is a fetish. This is a sexualization. It's really not about someone's identity or their struggle with gender dysphoria. This is about, for a lot of people, I'm not saying everyone, of course, there is a small percentage of people who truly have always had gender dysphoria who are not in the category that we're talking about. But for a large percentage of people that too many people don't want to talk about, I mean, this is about predation. So tell me a little bit more about this story and stories like it. So this story, actually, I I kind of stumbled upon when I was looking through the inmates currently at Edna Mahan, because I was speaking to some of the women there. And uh, it's quite shocking, I know, but I mean, just the fact that no media will touch it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this man, he he killed an Ecuadorian immigrant woman named Florandrade. as he, he boasted about drinking her blood, he actually wrote a letter to a newspaper to boast about it. And uh, specifically, this, this for me was really shocking that he took her clothing, put on her clothing, took her car. He was found arrested wearing her clothing and driving her car and had photo- taken his own photograph and placed it over hers on his ID as if he was taking her soul or her identity. Um, I mean, that's like the Silence of the Lambs. I mean, that's as horrifying as you can even uh, imagine. Yes, yes. I mean, when when we talk about, again, things that used to be well known have become taboo. I mean, it it has been known that, that certain sadomasochistic fetishes lead to criminal behavior, to violent criminal behavior. We knew that. Any decent sexologist or criminologist 30 years ago could tell you that. Um, I mean, there's a reason why Silence of the Lambs was even made, because it was based on at least two uh, such men who actually existed. So um, the, the, these men, when it comes to the fetishists, when it comes to the fetishists, these men can actually possibly be even more, more dangerous to women than um, your typical male offender. And then, so now you're having these women in New Jersey being forced to share spaces, um, but not only the fetishists. I mean, it's open to anybody right now. So you just have, for example, I spoke with a woman who was being forced to shower with a convicted male killer who was 6.7, a huge guy, and he's just in there in the shower watching women, ogling them and making And he's there for murder, by the way. Is there for murder of a man as well, which, you know, so he could kill a man and then he's now being allowed to shower with women. And these women, Um, just to like put a fine point on it, these women are being forced to shower, to be naked. I mean, many of these women have also experienced sexual trauma already. So they've already been raped by men. They've already been assaulted by men. Many of them are victims of violence themselves, even if they are also perpetrators of other kinds of violence. And they are being forced to shower, to be naked in front of a male murderer who is standing there ogling them. It's It's like a sick joke for these women. 
that's that's kind of exactly how uh, Mysika put it. So what I spoke to a woman named Mysika Diggs, uh, and she said it's like a nightmare we can't wake up from. Uh, she said, you know, it's like I'm being traumatized over and over again. We all are. Uh, some 80% of these women have an experience with male sexual violence and abuse. Um, so they're they're being re-traumatized. It's, it's quite a bit like torture, I would say. Yes. Um, I believe this even violates the Geneva Convention. So it's, it's international law should, ought to consider this um, a human rights violation. I mean, even the U.S. law. So the Eighth Amendment is supposed to protect right. from cru- cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, how cruel and unusual is yes. this? Yes. I mean, that is a known... A, a known form of shame and of torture forcing a woman to be naked in front of men. That is a form of humiliation. And I think what you have well documented is that is actually part of what these men are getting off on is the humiliation, either the forced submission of themselves or the forced submission of other people, which again goes back to exactly what you're talking about. It's also under the umbrella of BDSM. Um, And wow, how sick and how perverted that this has somehow that this has somehow been co-op or this has somehow been taken in and adopted as this form of love and inclusion and tolerance and something to be celebrated when at every turn it is victimizing people. It's victimizing women, not just in scenarios like this, but it's victimizing children through the online predation that you're talking about and also convincing them to lop off their healthy sexual organs when they are 15 years old. I mean, this is creating victims. It is not leading to a form of liberation. Uh, regarding the BSM, so in some extreme BDSM circles, it's very common. Well, I, sh- I shouldn't say because I don't know how common it is, but it's been documented that uh, amputations have been done for fetishistic reasons. So it's intended to show submission to the master. And so when you put that in the context of double mastectomies for little girls, it quite frankly uh, infuriates me. Um, and that this is being done to children essentially to normalize these behaviors that are sexual for for certain men um that children and women should be the collateral damage in this push uh and quite infuriates me and i think it's something that we need to talk about more i know people have their own angles when they discuss this issue they might talk about for example the money that's involved they might talk about the damage to someone's health um but because no one else had been talking about this i decided to look into the fetishistic aspect of it and frankly what i found um it it just keeps confirming everything that i think and ultimately i have come to the conclusion that this is you know bdsm full-time as a full-time identity. I mean, I've even read personals ads that explicitly said this, that, you know, I'm a, I, I want to live out my 24-7 BDSM fantasy with someone. And I, I'm sure that for some of these people, they probably experienced abuse of their own in the past. It's kind of, I think, a pattern or a history that we see when people are abused as children, they kind of turn around and become abusers. Of course, that's not any kind of excuse or justification whatsoever. It just shows kind of the damage of cycles of abuse and they become um, abusers themselves. And then 
of course, when you're pushed into this, as you said, there are so many different aspects of it. But when you have psychologists who aren't even willing to ask these questions, like, is there something else going on here? Is there something that is making you feel like you need to have this surgery or that you need to take these hormones or that you need to identify in this way? And then, of course, the pharmaceutical companies that make a lot of money off of this and the politicians that get a lot of power from this. I mean, there are so many different aspects, like you said, but I don't actually see really anyone wanting to touch the sexual aspect of it. It seems like that is the most taboo part. Um, but I also I want to also talk about we were talking about um, this as it relates to prisons. And you talked about a prison in New Jersey. This is also happening in Washington. It's also happening in California and the Women's Liberation Front. I know that you're familiar with them. They're known as wolf and um they filed a lawsuit last year november 2021 on behalf of four incarcerated women challenging a california law that allows men to self-identify as women or non-binary and be housed in women's facilities and they have been opposed by the american civil liberties union so aclu and other advocacy groups um because they of course are being demonized as bigoted and they have faced all kinds of opposition and they have had a hard time even maintaining a platform online they have actually had to use a server that is owned by like a conservative christian group which is kind of ironic um and so tell me i mean tell me your take on that i don't know if you have any special insight into that story but just so people kind of know what's going on here well you mentioned aclu and I do kind of want to talk about that, right? So ACLU has been trying to block Wolf, as you mentioned, in their lawsuit. So initially, uh, I believe Wolf had filed for a freedom of information request to see how many men were actually in the women's prison, and the ACLU attempted to block that. Now, the ACLU, where to begin? Uh, in my opinion, they're no longer fit for purpose, and they need to. Uh, they, there needs to be a huge overhaul within the entire ACLU because right. they're not doing anything for. In my opinion, they're not doing any good right now. That uh, they're fighting for the rights of these men that I've just mentioned to be transferred into women's prisons. That has been their main fight uh, in recent years, and they have been successfully lobbying to have convicted violent men housed with women. I, I, how, I don't know. It's just that all of these institutions are so beholden to this belief system right now. Um, and, but that's been their main drive. They haven't quite so much been focusing on other issues as much as they have that from where I'm sitting. And so obviously we see that when they tried to block Wolf as well. Uh, it's hard to know where to begin with that because, you know, you had an organization that's ostensibly set up to be helping people and uh, the people that they're helping or prioritizing. I mean, what about the discomfort of women? You know, we talk about a lot about the discomfort of these these men who, who may have a hard time in, in, in the men's prison, although technically a lot of these men, I strongly suspect, uh, are not actually having any kind of body dysmorphia whatsoever. Right. Um, but what about the discomfort of women? Why why isn't that a priority for nearly anyone? And the physical for, safety, you mentioned, it goes beyond. Exactly. If I had to choose, yeah. even, if a, even if a man really did have dysmorphia and we had to choose between his discomfort with his own body and the physical safety of the woman in prison, I'm going to go with the physical safety of the woman in prison. You know, so even if it was real discomfort, which as you said, 
I think it's not in a lot of cases. Um, still, there's priorities. And why don't women's physical safety, why doesn't that matter more? I mean, in all these cases, when it comes to locker rooms, when it comes to sports, why don't women's, not just their rights in, in general to fairness and to fair competition and to equality and all of that, but why don't our rights to physical safety matter more than what a man says that he wants? I I mean, I guess that's the question that a lot of feminists have been asking for a very long time. That's the million dollar question, yes. <laughs> uh, it's yeah. kind of depressing when you put it like that. Right. So on May 31st, Wolf submitted a brief in opposition to California's motion to dismiss the civil rights case opposing the California law that allows male offenders into female prisons. And some things that they said were, I mean, and this is just, again, it just seems like a a parody, a really dark parody. The men that are transferred to women's prisons are not even required to take hormones or have surgery. So we're talking like, uh, I'm sorry, again, explicit, but you're talking about a man who can physically like rape a woman. It's not like he has been neutered in any way by hormones or by surgery or anything. And right before this motion was filed, another female inmate was raped in prison. So this actually happened. This is not some like hypothetical scenario. Raped in prison by a male inmate in the yard porta potty while another male accomplice stood guard outside. I mean, if this doesn't make you just want to, oh my gosh, she was drugged and found unresponsive in her cell. The rapist was not immediately removed from the yard, despite a number of women pleading with the staff to do something. I mean, how do you how do you describe this? What's your reaction to that? I mean, with this, with this, you have horror after horror every day, almost it seems like, you know, why the, the extent to which it's so taboo to talk about this, that even a story like this isn't getting really mainstream traction, of course not. Um, why is everyone so scared to stand up against this? You know, women are being hurt terribly. Um, I guess I would say that it it is a bit frustrating. I understand, but it's a bit frustrating for me that the sports issue is the issue that's really taken hold in the uh, public consciousness at the moment, because it's something that we can all see. We see it in front of our eyes. We're told to deny the reality that we see in front of us, for example, with Leah Thomas. Um, And so these women in prison who are the most marginalized, I would say, women in the entire country um, are hidden from public view. And what happens to them? I mean, they even if they complain, they get put into lockup, they get put, which is basically isolation. Um, so if they say anything against this policy, then, then they are punished. And often, uh, at least with the women in New Jersey that I'm speaking with, they say that these men get certain priorities over women. They get their own cell, um, you know, so they, they're very specifically being privileged over the women within the facility. And they'll even say to the women that they can't say anything about it or else they'll be in trouble. So they brag about that. All right, last sponsor for the day, and that is GenuCell. If you are looking for skincare with anti-aging components, then you need to check out GenuCell, especially if you're dealing with like, you know, those classic under eye bags or puffiness. GenuCell knows that your under eyes need a different kind of hydration than the rest of your skin. They've sold over 1 million products, and their original product for under eye bags is still a top seller. So... 
take care of that. Everyone has them, but we just do the best that we can to deal with them. And GenuCell has a great product for you to do that. You save over 65% off on this. GenuCell guarantees results or your money back. So order GenuCell for bags and puffiness today with their most popular package and save over 65% off. Go to GenuCell.com slash Allie. That's G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash Allie. Enter my promo code Allie for an extra discount at checkout. Every order includes GenuCell's new dark spot corrector just in time for summer plus free shipping. That's GenuCell.com slash Allie. GenuCell.com slash Allie. I mean, as you said earlier, cruel and unusual punishment in so many different ways. And we are seeing the prioritization of men's comfort over women's physical safety um, in so many different areas, not just prisons, but also women's shelters and also girls' bathrooms and girls' locker rooms. And as I've heard Megan Murphy say before and ask such a good and disturbing question, as I'm sure you have, like what kind of man enjoys that? Like what kind of man enjoys making a woman or a girl uncomfortable like that a spa, I think it was We Spa in LA where this man, he, I guess, identified as the opposite gender and he was walking around erect in front of like minor girls, someone who truly has body dysmorphia or gender dysphoria, who is truly uncomfortable in your body and you want to be the opposite sex. That is not a characteristic of true gender dysphoria. That is not a characteristic of being uncomfortable in your body. That is a characteristic of someone who gets off on making women feel uncomfortable. Like, as you mentioned earlier, we've always known that. Like, there are men who, perverts, who like that kind of thing, who have been flashers, who have been sexual harassers. And now they get to jump under the umbrella of transgender and now they're an oppressed class instead of an oppressor class now they are marginalized instead of just like a straight white male who likes to harass women and because of that because of how they've climbed up the intersectionality scale just by way of declaration um their wants take priority over the needs of women and it's crazy how people just don't see that Yep, the the white male rapist has uh, more clout than the uh, the underprivileged women in prison who are victims of sexual abuse. Isn't that something? It's crazy how that works. Crazy how that works. I heard the story. I'm sure you saw it too. Um, I first saw it was on Taylor Silverman, who is a female skateboarder. It was on her Instagram, and now I'm seeing that it's reported elsewhere um, that male skateboarders are being able to, you know, they identify as the opposite gender, and then they are able to compete against female skateboarders. But it's not just that. I saw this New York Post um, article that showed a 30-year-old, or 29, I think, a 29-year-old male who identifies as a woman was in competition a few days ago against not other just other female skateboarders, but 10 and 13 year old girls. So guess who won? Like it was him. Of course he won the competition. And the poor girl who came in second place, who is 13 years old. So more than uh, half his age, uh, you know, less than half his age is saying, oh, I don't mind. You know, I want to be inclusive. I want to love everyone. Of course, this little girl is going to say that. She doesn't want to be bullied online. She doesn't want to be called a transphobe. Who knows that no one asked the 10-year-old little girl for comment. But seriously, I mean, the people online, people on Twitter defending this guy and saying, oh, you know, what advantage does he have over these people? You know, I can't seriously saying that they can't imagine what advantage this 
man would have over a 10-year-old girl in skateboarding. So I wonder if you ever think that people's minds have just become mush over this subject. Like, what do you think the mass delusion is that has come over people's brains that they just refuse to see reality here? I'm not going to lie. Of course, I think that's sometimes what happened. What? This is insane. Uh, but I, I think part of it, too, is definitely technology and social media. Um, I know that this probably gets talked about a lot or maybe there's a tendency to um, over hyperbolize the importance of this. But I, I really think it is crucial because, you know, social media, techno, well, just think about the fact that we're interacting right now through a device with each other. So we're already kind of separated from our own reality. Does that make sense? So we already have all of these things between us that are separating us from reality. So it's not quite so much of a leap to go a little bit further. And then you have people on social media who are using the hive mind or the echo chamber, whatever you want to call it, but basically peer pressure. Um, and the power of human deniability actually is mm. quite strong, much stronger than I would have thought before I got involved in all of this. I, I used to think, <laughs> I used to think, well, um, surely if people are presented with the truth or with facts, um, then they would come around. And, and I'm starting to wonder about that, having seen all of this, but, that's why we have to keep talking about it. And, you know, again, I just wanted to reiterate the importance of, you know, the reason why I'm doing this is because I'm concerned about children, uh, the medical abuse of children. You know, I myself, I grew up with epilepsy and um, I was recommended for a lobotomy at at around 11 years old. Um, And thankfully my father intervened uh, on my behalf. So that was happening that that recently in the United States. Well, yes. Technically, lobotomy can be considered a treatment for epilepsy that that doesn't respond to drugs. Um, and it's very rare, but I was not responding well to the medication, um, which one of those medications was made by the same company that makes Lupron, which is the hmm. puberty blockers for children, and has its own scandal uh, that's called Depakote. So um, anyway, so I myself went through a lot of medical uh medical interventions or medical what, what, things that that I didn't I didn't feel comfortable with things that were scary for me things that caused me to dissociate or disperse depersonalize from my body and so the issue of children you know I, I, it resonates with me very strongly when I listen to the voices of detransitioners which we should I think all be trying to amplify more and more mm-hmm. because there will be a lawsuit coming and the sooner the better so we need to get ahead of that and get behind these children and support them and be ready for that lawsuit. And one way we can do that is by looking at WPATH and criticizing WPATH, who has been recommending these protocols. Yes. And I know that we're about to close out, but I realized that we never circled back to the man who identifies as Monica Hogue, who came up with the transgender flag. And I've always pointed out how I think it's so weird that the transgender flag is baby colors, like baby blue and baby pink. That in itself to me is creepy. Um, But could you just tell us quickly um, who this person is and how they came up with this flag and why that matters? So, right. So Monica Helms, he goes by, and then his birth name, uh, Robert Hogg, Hogue, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, but yeah, so he, he's an army uh, veteran. He's in the Navy. Sorry, he was in the Navy. Um, and he, I read his memoir, which is called More Than Just a Flag, and he very openly talks about his 
uh, fetishes in that book. It's it's quite something. I, <laughs> I don't necessarily recommend it, but he spends a great deal of time talking about wanting to lose his virginity, for example, um, and stealing women's underwear. Um, just astonishing. Oh, uh, again, a fetish. And, Right. I wondered, too, why don't people know who created the trans flag? That's what got me interested in this. Like, we should be talking about this person more if they're so influential that they even have an emoji of the trans flag. And yet no one knows his name. No one knows anything about him. As far as I can tell, not anyone's read his memoir apart from me. It's, I can't find anybody. Right. Anyway, so he he also had a, a book of uh, science fiction short stories, which are basically light versions of the forced feminization erotica um, that I was telling you about. And that involves themes, too, of like age regression. And I'm not kidding. If you go to Amazon right now and you type in TG age regression, you're going to see some stuff. Mm. So he he uh, he wrote this fantasy about marrying a little girl who doesn't age. Um, She's a witch. Apparently, this is her superpower. And then they have a daughter together who looks like him and has that same power. So it's this this weird projection of, I mean, know, it's pedophilia. It's pedophilia. It's au- so, it's I mean, the, yeah. the person who created the transgender flag, which happens to be baby colors, also wrote pedophile pornography, basically a pedophile fantasy. There's just there's there's so much there's so much more that I could talk to you about. Just I just want to list like a couple things that you've reported on. There was there's this man who is a convicted toddler rapist who is now an award winning trans activist who goes by Zena Grandicelli, born Jeffrey Wilsey. There was also this terrible story that you wrote about about uh, a toddler a, a toddler killer who oh I read about that murder and I won't even say it on here how awful it is you reported on this um, in May named Christopher King he has been transferred now to the women's prison in New York because he suddenly decided that he is transgender so all of what you're talking about and the roots of where it's coming from and what's underneath it I mean that is affecting policy and that is then in a in in turn affecting especially women and children i mean i i think we haven't even scratched the surface or at least in this conversation we haven't even scratched the surface of just the depths of depravity that are behind all of this um so just to kind of close us out um besides like following you and supporting you which i really really encourage people to do like what can people do who care about this and who want to sound the alarm about this and want to do something about this but they just feel totally powerless what do people do uh so i would guess the first thing is to talk with other people um one of the problems with this issue is people often feel alone or that they're going crazy that Nobody is thinking the same way that they are or seeing the same things that they are. So trying to talk about it um, for those who can um, get involved with your school. Uh, try. We really need to try to fight back against this being in the school system as well. But for, for those who, who have, you know, maybe a more 
legal mind, I would try to encourage you to to find ways to support detransitioners or to to be prepared for a medical lawsuit. That I th- I mean, just this week we saw a, a boy in in the UK who's suing the NHS uh, over this uh, surgery that he was he felt forced into or pushed into. So, I mean, that's coming and uh, we need to be ready for it. But I guess the biggest thing that most of us could do is just to keep talking about it. And, you know, for my part, I I try to keep highlighting the aspects of it that are really grim and difficult to look at because I know that people tend to not want to talk about the the fetish aspect. It's very uncomfortable. It's very squeamish and um, very, very unpleasant. Uh, But um, it's there. So we got to do something about it. Yeah, we do. And I just, I mean, this is a a Christian podcast. And I think like one of the most disheartening things for me is to see people who I know, or they say that they have the same belief system as I do. Christianity is very clear about the existence of male and female. They really don't want to talk about this because people, and not just Christians, but so many people have been convinced that in order to be loving, in order to not be a bigot, which no one wants to be, you just kind of have to go along to get along. You just kind of have to accept every new iteration of sexuality and identity in order to be a loving person. And I'm so thankful for people like you who just kind of put the brakes on that and say, hang on, like we need to look under the hood here. We need to look at what's really going on. And I agree, the more you talk about it, the more you lift the hood, the more you look at the atrocities that are going on in the name of this ideology, I do. I just hope and pray that people wake up to the reality of how dark this is. So thank you for what you do. Where can people find you and support you? So I'm on Twitter at Women Read Women, and uh, you can support our work. So Redux is, uh, we our funding comes from our readers. So if you're willing to support us, we do have a Patreon account where you can subscribe, uh, and we send out weekly newsletters about some of the work that we've been doing. And we're always looking for stories, so if you, if you have something you want to say, um, you can contact us through our website, Redux with two X's dot info. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Um, Please come back anytime. I know that there's a lot that we didn't get to cover today. Anytime you have a new story or a new investigation, we would love to amplify it as much as possible. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you for having me, Ellie. All right. I just want to do a quick outro because I want to remind you all as you are listening to this and realizing just how dark and awful this is that Our presidential administration in the United States is pushing this stuff hardcore. The Biden administration, the USDA, under the direction of the Biden administration, is withholding is withholding food funding for poor children if the schools that receive this kind of funding do not allow boys into girls locker rooms and bathrooms and so the biden administration is forcing this kind of stuff they're pushing this kind of stuff also they have changed title nine to mean not just banning discrimination on the basics uh, the basis of sex but also banning discrimination on the basis of so-called gender identity making it impossible for any kind of public entity um, to ban males 
from female sports or female locker rooms or female bathrooms. And so they're pushing this stuff. They're forcing this kind of stuff. They are negating um, biological categories and saying that if you declare yourself to be a woman, then again, your comfort and your wishes trump a woman's right to fairness or to safety or to privacy. I mean, it really is some kind of sick joke. It's some kind of dystopian nightmare that we are living in when it comes to this stuff. And again, as I just kind of alluded to with Genevieve, I just do not understand. I cannot understand besides them being just completely deluded with the spirit of the age, professing Christians who tiptoe around this, who pretend that, oh, we just need to be polite about it. It's just a nuanced topic that we don't really need to talk about. Once again, just like on the abortion issue, you are failing to do your job. Like you're failing to do your job as a Christian, which is not just to speak the truth in love. And this is the most basic truth there is. It's all the way in Genesis 127 that God made us male and female. Um, But also you are failing to act in love. You're failing to protect women and children. And both scenarios, by the way, when it comes to abortion and when it comes to gender ideology, like what are you good for? Just like giving these so-called nuanced takes on Twitter about how we need to walk the line on everything and Apparently, the Bible is clear on absolutely nothing, according to these people. They're cowardly, and people are being hurt because of that. If just every single Christian, not even talking about the general public, if just every single Christian would stand up against this stuff and be clear about it and push for a good policy that recognizes not just biblical, not just not just morality, but also reality, then we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. But because so many Christians have been deluded into thinking that empathy means accepting all forms of irrationality and all forms of immorality and all forms of anarchy, we are in this terrible state of depravity and people are being hurt because of that. So let this be your wake up call. First of all, like stop voting for these people if you are for some reason. Um, but also stop believing that politeness is what is required for you as a Christian, it's not. Truth is, courage is, obedience to God is, and obedience to God is going to look like resistance to this absurdity. All right, that's all I've got for you today. We will see you back here on Monday. I hope you have a great weekend.